You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan. I am here with my co-host, Rob. Hello. Howdy. How you doing? Uh, I'm all right. And filling in for Anthony once again, who is still in England, merry old England, we have Stephanie Seymour. How are you, Stephanie? Hi, I'm good, and I'm glad to be here again. Well, it is always a joy to have you with us. Thanks, guys. You are awesome. <laughs> I love you, too. <laughs> Yay! So, um, as we mentioned on previous shows, Stephanie has a single out that's called There Was a Time. So, Stephanie, give us a little update on on what's happening with the single and how everything's going. It's I'm very excited because it's still, you know, every week I still get radio play from sort of around the country like i i am promoting it uh, so i i mean i guess if i stop doing that it probably you know but i keep finding new outlets and new stuff and so when people hear it they generally react positively and they play it and so i you know it's i'm very happy with how it's going it's exciting well, I mean, you know I love the song. I do, and thank it's you. It's so catchy. It's so fun. It just feels summer to me. So yeah. this is a great time for people to sort of be discovering it, I think. I think you're right. I think I think it's a great summer song. It really is. It's very, like, uh, upbeat and catchy and, yep. yeah, summery. And okay. it's just feel good. Yeah, it's feel good. You know, and we- I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of that term, but it fits this song so well. So um, I was listening to uh, one of the shows on Sirius XM and they were talking about how this year there's just not that song of the summer. You know, there's mm. not the one big hit that sort of defines the summer of 2022. So I am going to nominate <laughs> There Was a Time by Stephanie Seymour as the song of the summer. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that endorsement. And let's get it. Well, you know, Sirius is playing me on a few the, the underground um I always yeah. want to call it something else, but the underground garage, like I always almost say something else, but, um, that, you know, Palmyra has been a huge uh-huh. support and, and yeah. a couple other people. So it's been wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I told you once that I had tweeted at Laura, Lori Majewski, who does a show called yes. Fierce Women, that she should have you on as Aww. a true fierce woman. And, um, I, I didn't get a response from, you know, but she, she gets tweeted yeah. out by a billion people a day. Yeah. So I think I'm going to do that again and just, Hey, drop that little suggestion in her, in her inbox, because I do think she would have an amazing interview with you. Thank you. That's very sweet of you. That I would mean, be you awesome. Know, she doesn't know who the heck I am and I don't carry any weight. She but, doesn't you know, know who I, I am either. <laughs> So, but if I, if I do it and she picks it up, well, I'll just feel like I've accomplished something. So, <laughs> No, I really owe you. <laughs> All right. So let's do our shout outs for the week. Anything that we've been listening to, watching, reading over the past week, Rob, what's been occupying your time this week? Well, I have been listening to the song of the summer uh, as touted by a couple different trades and stuff. A uh, band called The Umbrellas. They're from San Francisco. They're on tour right now. And um, they have a song called Write uh, It in the Sky, which is a new seven-inch single. Kids, ask your parents. It is the <laughs> uh, perfect little jangle pop record for the summer. Um, it's got all the things you sort of want in a nice little pop record for the summer. Um, so I want to shout out to that. 
Also, uh, a close second would be uh, Dry Cleaning. Don't Press, the new single from Dry Cleaning, who are just amazing. Huh. Um, also, I would say, too, if you want a nice summer album, anything that anything off that Wet Leg record at this point is probably yeah. like the, the you know listening to the whole wet leg record all the way through reminded me of what it felt like when i heard the go-go's uh mm-hmm. debut album for the first time so interesting sort of energy and spirit and hmm. then uh finally a band from chicago called thank you i'm sorry <laughs> okay a single <laughs> called parliaments that i love and i admit it i was i freely admit it i uh was caught by caught by the name yeah, it's a good name. Yeah, and then and then I heard the words shoegaze and dream pop, and then I got hooked again. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm. Those are kind of some of the single things, and then uh, that I that I'm listening to um, right now, and then I'm rereading um, the oral history of Joy Division book that. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, John Savage wrote Joy Division that's and a, Oral History. That's um, really cool. Which is really good. Yeah. Sweet. Stephanie, what's been in your eyes and your ears? Um, well, because we're doing all of this, um, you know, late, I was researching all of my favorite labels as we're going to talk about. Um, I was hooked, as I usually get on um, the album In Full Gear by Stetsasonic, which is one of my all-time favorite records. And because um, I was think I was, you know, talking about, writing down and stuff about Tommy boy. And I was just like, that mm. is the record for me. So, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I was, re- I'm sort of like a, I was, I was, I should say a, like a chameleon. Cause I was in a lot of different scenes. And one of them was that whole kind of hip hop scene in the mid to early, to late eighties, even mm-hmm. the early eighties, I was into it, but I mean, so uh, we'll talk more extensively about that, I'm sure. But t- I think oh, yeah. if, if anybody wants to go back and revisit like an amazing album from that time, Stetsasonic Sonic in full gear, you kind of can't really, I don't know what else would top yeah. it in my book. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. That was like the main thing I was listening to. I was listening to, you know, some other stuff, some from my Island Records days, like Amazulu. I don't know if you guys remember. Oh my gosh, I love Montego them. Bay. So I, I haven't I, heard that in so long. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all. I mean, that's a cover song too. That's like a cover of something. But they did such a great. I love their yeah. version of it. Um, yeah. So I was listening to some stuff on the Mango label that we that I used to work. You know, like Salif Kita and um, uh just Aswad. I love Aswad. So anyway, stuff like that. Older, nice. older, older bands. Wow. I'm a Zulu. That's a mm-hmm. blast from the past. Yeah. Holy smokes. Wow. I know. So, okay. Um, I've got a couple of things. One, Blondie has a new single out. It's actually not a new recording. It's a cover of uh, The Doors' Midnight Drive. And it's coming off of a new box set that's coming out called Against the Odds, 1974 to 1982, which is going to be a collection of all kinds of Blondie stuff, unreleased things and demos and live tracks and all this kind of stuff. And so Midnight Drive is the first taste that we get from from this new collection. And um, I've all, you know, the, the Doors original is nice. I've always kind of liked it, but I really love blondie's take on this they've really picked up the tempo they have uh, made it more guitar centric actually more guitar and drum centric i would say because there's a a number of little drum breaks in there and you know and i think that uh debbie harry just sounds fantastic on it i'm not exactly sure when this was recorded obviously it was recorded sometime between 74 and 82 and i'm thinking it has to be more on the like 80 81 sort of end of the spectrum i'm guessing just because of the sound quality and things like that um but i think it's fantastic cool have y'all heard that i haven't oh my gosh yeah Go it's listen really to it. it's very cool yeah i had a feeling you were going to bring that one up so i kind of left it Thank um, you. yeah it's it's really good and, it, and the thing nothing makes me more frustrated um than i do my show on wednesday and, every, and all the stuff drops on thursday yeah yeah <laughs> where it used to all drop on a monday Right. Yeah. Um, All right. And I got one other one. And this one is something that I got from our buddy, Anthony, who is in England right now. Um, 
we've been messaging back and forth and we've been sending uh, music to each other. And so he's on his flight to England and he just out of nowhere, just drops this in my inbox. He's like, Oh my gosh, you have to listen to this. It is a band called bloody wood. It's sort of a play on Bollywood. They're from Mm -hmm. India. Uh, They formed in 2016 and they they label themselves, or at least they have been labeled as folk metal. They are <laughs> the very typical, heavy, you know, very staccato guitar and drum things <laughs> with one guy who sings in like normal voice and another guy who does the typical cookie monster vocals. And they mix a very heavy metal sound with traditional indian instruments Hmm. and i am absolutely in love with this stuff it's a little heavier than what i normally listen to i love heavy stuff but when it gets down into the cookie monster stuff i don't enjoy it as much but they are so good and that mix of traditional instrumentation with the heavy guitars and the bass and everything i'm absolutely loving and they have a just a phenomenal sense of humor they have, um, let's see, they have a, there, there's actually a documentary about them called Raj Against the Machine. Oh, that's uh, great. Right? And they have, that's um, great. he was telling me about something else. It's not a song, but it's something else where, you know, the Indian bread, non, where yeah. they call it non-inch nails. I mean, come <laughs> on, that's genius. They have a Christmas song called Angry Santa. Yep. Which has the line, jingle, jingle, motherfucker. And it's just... <laughs> hilarious but they're such good musicians and and great songwriters and so that's my big shout out for the week i've like been obsessed with this wow that sounds wild it's crazy i absolutely love them so everybody should go check out bloody wood all right let's take a very quick break we will be right back in about 30 seconds to talk about our uh, big topic of the night which is our favorite record labels so stick around we'll be right back Comic Cons are back. Fans are ready. Hear all about it on the Con Guys Show, where we keep you up to date on all the events, the movies, the people, and the conventions that drive your passions and feed your fandom. Straight from the nerdy heart of Hollywood, California, we are proud members of the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hey, everybody. So one of the things uh, as we're kicking around things to talk about this week, uh, I was reminded of the the sort of uh, effect that, you know, when we discover an artist that also in many ways comes with discovering a record label and being musically obsessive, you know, you'll hear a band and you'll like it and you'll be like, I wonder if anything else on their label sounds like that. So it makes you want to check out a label. This happened for me a lot, you know, growing up with uh, hearing a lot of jazz and a lot of disco records um, and soul soul records. And I realized quickly that like a lot of the records my brother liked were really connected through a label like Arista and Casablanca. Well, and Alan will talk about Casablanca later, but uh, it made me sort of think about the connection between labels and music. And then also uh, being a DJ on the radio that sort of connection between our relationship with music and that like how you get a record out, you know, how a label gets their music out and what labels sort of bring us back to those sort of days. Because college radio, uh, at least for me, the college radio years were kind of the label years, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we all heard, you know, R.E.M. or the Go-Go's and that led us to everything else through IRS. Or like, you know, through 4AD, you hear the Cocteau Twins oh, yeah. and then you move mm-hmm. on through. So that made me start thinking about what record labels do we associate that have memories for us or what, you know, what record labels made us go down those rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. And I guess, uh, Alan, I'll, I'll start with you because um, I know you said a couple in, in, in the prep that were really good. What labels did you, do you sort of remember discovering and how did that sort of chain get connected for you? Um, you know, I'm also really interested in labels that have a particular identity. 
you know, like that sum up a sound or a genre or something like that. Something that is like very much like you hear something and you say that must be from, you know, and um, the first to me, the first big one. And one of the ones that I was most aware of growing up, of course, is Motown, um, who had like if you name any of the soul acts on in from the 60s, particularly Diana Ross and the Supremes, Smokey Robinson, the Jacksons, Marvin Gaye, the Temptations, Four Tops, Stevie Wonder. I mean, that is like the greatest roster of of talent probably any record label has ever put together and i mean they're just amazing and people think of motown as like a 60s thing because of those acts but they had a ton of success in the 70s 80s and they're still uh, releasing stuff now um it's it's different now especially after barry gordy's death but um like 70s they got into like film production and stuff like that and they did lady sings the blues mahogany both of those were diana ross movies um, so that like she was already a big star and that just elevated her even more. The Wiz, which was Diana Ross and Michael Jackson and Nipsey Russell and all kinds of people. Thank God it's Friday. I mean, just insane. And then in the 80s, The Last Dragon. Crazy. Yeah. Fucking crazy movie. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that was like probably the first record label that I was ever really aware of as far as like this is a thing. Like you can even sum up that stuff from the '60s, particularly as the Motown sound. They they pretty much had the their own identity as far as the stuff that they. But you know, a lot of that comes from the way that they cultivated their talent, the way that they uh, compartmentalized everything that they did. They they sort of took that Detroit process of uh, manufacturing. And they turned it into a music label where they had departments for songwriting. They had departments for recording. They had departments for artist development. Yeah, they, they had did, they had yeah. the wardrobe people. They had the the stylist who would come in and teach you how to present yourself, teach you how to behave. I mean, they had every aspect of it covered, and they made sure. And they had weekly meetings on Friday where the the newest songs written. The newest songs recorded would be passed by a committee headed up by Barry Gordy Jr. Barry had uh, veto power. The committee voted on everything. Um, Barry had the last word on whether it would come out. And through that process, they only ever released killer music. Wow, that that's that is a perfect example. I mean, I think they're almost like one of the only ones that had like that you know, that encapsul encapsulated a certain sound always. Yeah. That's just really yeah. a good, great pick. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, is when you go to Detroit and you go to Motown, it is the smallest room. Oh, yeah. Outside of Sun Records, you know, something like that. It is like so many amazing records came from this really small yeah. room. Yeah. And that's that's just incredible. Um, and there was like a 10 year period where they had I think it was like, what was it, 62 to 72. They had one hundred and ten top 10 records. Oh my God. I mean, yeah. insane. And they did so much to bridge that racial chasm that existed in America at that time where they presented black artists in a way that white audiences, you know, were drawn to it. And, and it, it was one of those things that appealed almost universally. So, yeah. Incredible, incredible story behind yeah, that. Yeah. Everybody label. loved everything that came out. I mean, who didn't yeah. love uh, right. any Motown record, really. Right. Steph, do you have a, a choice for your first one? I do. And it was more to, uh, to what you said. And actually, your example of IRS, that is my top mm. pick, I guess, because that was what led me down the rabbit hole, as it were, into all sorts of music. But, you know, it was it was seeing the Go-Go's and, um, you know, and to an extent... At, at that time on MTV, you know, you would see a, a Flesh Tones video maybe, or you would see Oingo Boingo or something like that. But, and of course, R.E.M. So, you know, it, it, that led me down the rabbit hole to the whole IRS <laughs> empire. And I, you know, it, it was because it was like Miles was doing IRS, Ian was booking at FBI, and was Miles also CIA, head, the head of CIA, the, the mm -hmm. agency? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... 
you know, the, the brothers were, they really created something special, I think. Um, and so even, and even the police, I mean, even though they weren't on IRS, it was still like, you know, that whole connection with the Copelands, obviously. Yeah. So I think that, that, that IRS, especially in the, in the early eighties, you know, with wall of voodoo and, and mm. they even, I think they had the alarm. They had some yeah. more, I think they had buzzcocks too. If I'm not, I mm-hmm. dead Kennedy's maybe. So they, they had some, some, a little harder stuff, but then they had the popular stuff. And then even into, the nineties or or maybe it was like 90, uh, they had the concrete blonde album, uh, Mm. bloodletting. Was that bloodletting? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was a huge with Joey, that was a huge smash hit. So they, they did kind of continue for a while. Um, that got them signed to MCA too, I think. Right. Yeah. I think, cause I think they did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they had a few albums on um, Concrete Blonde had a few albums on I, yeah. on IRS and then went over. But yeah, I think that I, was I their biggest to, hit though, Joey. I used to be in a band that covered Bloodletting. Oh, really? <laughs> it's so <laughs> fun. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you made a really really interesting point that I've never thought of before. What? And when you're a casual listener, or even more than casual, if you're listening to the radio, you hear a song. The, the DJ tells you that is whatever the song is by whatever the artist is. It wasn't really until the MTV days that you would see a song. Yeah. You would, and in the lower left corner, you would see the artist, the song, the oh, label yeah. that it was released on. I've never really thought about the fact that MTV changed the way that audiences would think about the, the the industry mm-hmm. from the, the, the brand term, the label way, yeah from branding exactly right That's and, and so the little Chiron that that changed everything and then if you think about also with MTV with IRS I mean they had that Peter Zaremba hosted um the Cutting Edge right that was there that they that featured IRS artists I mean it was they didn't only play IRS artists right like, right they really featured it so yeah. and that turned into I believe one twenty minutes yeah I think yeah. though I think they sort of existed together for a while, but then it it turned into Mm -hmm. 120. So, you know, like they did really create a whole. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and at that point too, labels had realized because college radio was playing records and they would say, Oh, this is the band, the artist and the label. And then the major labels got, got onto it really quickly that people that listened to the Go-Go's record, might also want to listen to another band on another label. So they, yeah. they started, they, so it, it sort of was this like kind of hipster capitalism where it's like, well, you know, well, we're going to start branding a label. You started to see labels yeah. getting branded at this particular time. Yep. So like a lot of this sort of started in college radio and kind of moved through and college radio took the, uh, took the blueprints of the twenties and the thirties when people were looking at like his majesty's voice or DECA and trying to sell a whole label. Like, yeah. you know, like with Bing Crosby was doing that with DECA. Like, all these artists are on DECA. Buy them, right? Yeah. So IRS really had that down and just sort of looked at the past to, to model all of that up. Even down to their logo, you know? If you think about, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. their logo and FBI's logo, you know, just like everything was so perfect. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. The little IRS man that you wanted to, you know, that, yeah. I mean, I dreamed of being on that label and then I was, <laughs> you know, it was like, it <laughs> kind of that, just, kids dreams can come it, true. Yes. They can come true. Although it was weird at that point. So it wasn't the same as it was. It wasn't the dream come true <laughs> for a minute. It was, but did it turn into a nightmare? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah, well, you know. Okay. It wasn't the best. <laughs> it wasn't I'm the so best. So sorry to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for me, because you guys have used a couple of mine, I'm going to go outside the box a little. Um, you know, growing up in St. Louis, we would go to Chicago a lot because it was close. And that's where the record stores and stuff were. And it was just a whole scene and everything. So very quickly, as much as I loved all the indie college stuff, I got, I, I'm a kid that sort of got hooked on the, the double whammy of network records and wax tracks. Right. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So um, like you'd go to Chicago, you'd go to like two or three clubs and you'd hear all the wax tracks records. Then you go to the store, um, which, which, which was open. And then they had the label 
And for for about five to ten years, that Wax Tracks label uh, really did a good job of doing self identity with their logo and um, they the way that they sort of did album artwork. I think more so than IRS, more than IRS. I mean, they, they very much had a brand identity, but they tied their their all their album cover artwork and the visuals of everything was all very systematically laid out as a, as a label. And um, they had a lot of records that were sort of strange, but now aren't as strange as they appeared when they came out. But they were, you know, if you like, if you, a lot of people, that's how they discovered Ministry or Front 242 or Coil, right? Yeah. Uh, or KMFDM. So that that is one, Network's another. And then, you know, the two ones that really got me hooked sort of later were also like uh, 4 AD 4 was kind of like... Totally. <laughs> like literally anything 4 AD. I'd go to the record store if it was an important, it had 4 AD on it. I'm like, yep. okay, this is like, this is... Um, Steph, don't so get mad. So many great things on like Steph, don't get mad. Don't what? get mad. But that was the, some girl somewhere will like this if it's on 4 AD label, right? Uh, but also I would like it too. Like if you put a 4 AD record yeah. on a mixtape, the girl, it was like, the girl was instantly know you were cool. I mean, the Cocteau Twins were like amazing. They had so many great bands. Yeah. Belly, Throwing Muses, like Pixies. Color This box, Mortal Coil. Did you already ARK, say this ARK, The Breeders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, they, they had a million. They were great. And they had such a, you're right, they had such an identity. And then also, um, <sighs> Creation Records for me was a. I, they have that. Um, an example. We were so we were friends uh, with Primal Scream, so that's uh, an example of how to have a label crash and burn. Um, you know, I I, I love I, I literally tracked down like I think three. I'm only missing like five albums from the catalog of wow. Creation. I'm not counting like singles and weird shit, but like the core of it, right? Um, and literally, I go to the record store. If I had Creation on, I'm like, okay, I know it's going to have a certain sound, a certain look, a certain style, and stuff. Totally. And um, I went, when I, first time I went to London, I uh, went to see a High Lama show and I was in the bathroom and there's a guy washing hands next to me and it was Alan McGee. And I just sort of literally stood there for a minute and he's like, you all right, mate? And I'm like, you're Alan McGee. <laughs> and uh, he goes, yeah. I go, your records are all just fucking amazing. <laughs> and he goes, well... Didn't make any money, walks away. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. That is so Sounds funny. like Alan. Um, oh, God. Yeah. So that creation was just like, and there's a couple documentaries and books out on them um, that are just amazing. Um, and they sort of tied in a lot, sort of what IRS did, you know, tying in yeah. a feeling, and, but, but, you know, this whole British band thing, you know, it sort of took everything that Factory Records did and anti and up the ante and it's just like um it was just an amazing label even even the record the bands like adorable that had like were in and out the door right that, they were still amazing you know hypnotone yeah. this band hypnotone that nobody remembers it was like in and out you know um no, but they had big they had great like jesus and mary chain and bloody valentine they had large you know big oh, I mean, obviously primal screen but yeah. And I think I think you and I had our staff had our very first creation records conversation uh, when I was in your office talking about the fluke record because I think you worked Pan Am to Philly um, by fluke. No, I don't think so. What was either that? that I, I thought I thought either Charisma put that out. Or, oh, maybe it was Charisma, but maybe I, I might not have worked that. But I, but I, I know you and I. Were, I just remember you and I were talking about the fluke record coming out oh. in America for Pan Am into Philly, and we started talking about Creation Records. Be, because also with create. Oh well, go ahead. Finish your thought, though. No, it was just um, you know, and the other great thing about labels, and I'm sure Alan will get this too, is when you meet another person who's a music person, and you start talking about labels. Yeah. Whoever you're with, whoever your partner is at that time or whatever, it's the worst time in the world for them, right? <laughs> yeah, they're like. Because oh. my, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time's like, well, Stephanie's cool, but you two like you two might as well speak Latin because it's <laughs> like you're off in your own little world. I'm like, yes, we are. You know. Uh, now so, I don't yeah. think at that point though, Rob, that. Uh, well, we might have. I don't know. I, I don't it, know if you worked it or not, but I remember us having a conversation about it and how well, different I was it say sounded. Because the Aquanet, like my band, the Aquanet is, um, we, we were friends with 
with Primal Scream, my my bass player Claudine dated and Andrew for a little while, and we knew them through FBI because we were, Ian would have the most insane parties at the office, and the office was right next to my building, also where I worked at at um, Virgin too. So, mm-hmm. oh, it might have been when you were at Virgin. It might may, maybe yeah. well, Charisma Virgin, same. I was there first, and then I was there was, but it was yeah. the same building. But um, so we met Andrew Andy at a party at oh. Ian's. I mean, it was like an insane. FBI party with like just just like <laughs> just to think about the stuff that happened in the nineties and eighties like never would happen today. But anyway, so, so I, I, I got to ask you, and this is yeah. something that I've been thinking about, and this is the perfect opportunity to ask it. I think of IRS as one of those labels that sort of has that very specific identity of their own. I'm just wondering during the time that your band was on IRS, was there a sense of you know, we're part of a family. We have this connection to these other artists. There is some commonality between us and some of these other bands. And how much mix was there between all of you? I, I, I don't um, I don't feel it as much as the IRS connection, uh, or I did not feel it as much IRS connection. Then, first of all, we were really network. We were really signed to network, you know, okay. and then IRS distributed us in the States and they worked yeah. us in the States. And so we were there a lot and we like hung out with all the people and we knew them and everything. And um, so there was some camaraderie, I guess, and there was certain, but we would be, we, on tour, we would get put together with, you know, more like our uh, network bands. Like we played yeah. with, I think, Consolidated and NMC 900 Foot Jesus. Now, I don't know if that, if they were both on network, but, you know, like Catterwall was in the studio. Remember Catterwall, yeah. So, 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 you know, there was a little bit, but more, I felt like from our booking agent from FBI, there mm. were a lot of bands that, you know, that were signed um, and we would be put together with because of FBI rather than mm-hmm. because of IRS. So, and so then we met, so to just finish that thought, I, we met Primal Scream and Andy um, played, uh, produced our single Woe, which came out as a, you know, in 1992, I believe. And that was like NME, NME single yeah. of the week and stuff. So that, that was our little Primal Scream connection. Yeah. And also he and I, we, I rem- I'll never forget it when we were making that song, we both had maracas and shakers and we, sh- we had to shake them through that. The whole song is like, it's like a long, it's five minutes or so that song. And it, we shook these maracas, these and shakers for like five minutes. And we had to do it a few times. And we were, I just remember us looking at each other, like, Oh my God, we're going to die. We're like, right. it's, it's so fast. <laughs> and we just like kept going. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't seem like shaking maracas is that big a deal until you have to do it <laughs> five minutes at a time over and over and over. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and at that time, Andy Weatherall was like remixing like literally every friggin' record. So Andy he, Weatherall, that's right. And was pretty much all over the place because that Primal Screen gig that he had really transferred. And he also was a DJ. I meant I, I meant Andy Innes though. Sorry, oh, Andy Innes. Okay, Innes. that's yeah. what I was confused about. Okay, yeah, Andrew from the band who was in the band Primal Scream, not not Andy Weatherall. Because I know when they toured with Screamadelica, Andy Weatherall was with them like mm-hmm. everywhere. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for making that. Yeah, sorry. I did, I, but he also was pretty mm-hmm. amazing too. Totally. And I, I remember, I think when you were on network, you were you were talking about like some of the the tours that you were doing. The people were cool, but it was a weird. They were sort of weird. Some weird bills. Bills, yeah. And like you do a lot of showcases. Like I think the the I I remember going to an SBK record showcase. Huh. In the '90s, with um, Will and the Bushman, and then Blur, and then Slow Dive, <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, and that was right when Blur dropped, right? And then uh, I went to like a Pravda Records showcase, and it was like a bunch of the bands were really kind of jagged, like mm. why? So I think labels started to really think about how they put the artists together, like as a roster. Like this is our attitude, this is our roster, this is our look. And then they started booking bands. You really start seeing this idea of a package tour taken to the next level. Like, okay, we're going to put, you know, uh, the Breeders uh, out with Belly, for example. Right. We're going to tour these bands together. Well, just think about Lilith Fair. That was started by the, um, not Terry Mm -hmm. from IRS, but I mean, from Network, but, um, or was it Terry? No, it was, uh, it was one of the guys, I can't believe I can't think of his name. 
but he but talking about a package yeah thing lilith fair that was like yeah you know the identity of you know it was Sarah McLaughlin. That's why they did it. Mm-hmm. They think he started it because that was she was on network and she was recording too when we were in the studio recording. Oh, cool. Yeah. How did yeah. it feel? How did it feel for her to be recording next to the Aquanetas? <laughs> right. Her and Debbie. Her and Debbie became pretty good friends for a while. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember Debbie going hiking with her, but of course Sarah was. Just, it was 1990, so it was not yeah. only 89 when we recorded. So you know. And um, I know we talked about Motown, um, but there's a lot of legacy labels, too, that I think are interesting. You know, I was prepping for this and I I was thinking of, um, you know, like Chess and Blue Note, you know, things like that. And then Alan literally thought of the same one I did, which was Casablanca, Mm. which is just there's a documentary on, on, on that. If you ever get a chance to see it, which is pretty incredible. But talk about a label that just didn't have an off switch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, they dominated radio in the 70s. Mm-hmm. They, they, st- uh, there's a guy called Neil Bogart, and that's where the Casablanca comes from, Bogart. Um, he uh, was interested in Kiss, and he tried to get Kiss signed to a record label, and nobody wanted him. So he's like, well, fine, I'll start my own record label and I'll sign them. And so he starts Casablanca Records, signs them. They put out their first album. The first three records don't do jack squat. The fourth record, which was their first live album, exploded. And from that point on, they were fine. Um, But the interesting thing about Casablanca to me is that other than Kiss and one or two others, like there was a band called Angel that they had, which Kiss was getting all the press about being satanic and, you know, Knights and Satan's service and all that stupidity. And Angel was like supposed to, they were sort of marketed as the antithesis of Kiss. Mm -hmm. They were the white rockers. They were the good guys. And it was just stupid. (laughs) And and they weren't that good anyway. Um, But other than pretty much those two bands, they ruled disco. I mean, their big, their big one was Donna Summer. They had Parliament, the Village People, Lit Inc., Share, that's right. Yeah. Um, in the 80s, I had Anna Motion. They 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 did like some other things, like some comedy albums they released with Robin Williams and Rodney Dangerfield. And they did some like more contemporary stuff like Captain and Tennille. But really, man, the disco they dominated market, disco, yeah. Disco they did. was where they made bank. And <laughs> the funny thing is in 79, Kiss put out an album called Dynasty, which had the song. I was made for loving you. And Paul Stanley said that he he did it because he wanted to show that he could write one of them, their disco songs. But I've always wondered if Casablanca said, you know, what's really super hot is this disco thing. And we're making big bank on that. Why don't y'all try that? Why don't you go a little more lighter in your sound and go a little more, you know, pop in your sound? And I always wondered if they were sort of... Hmm influenced that way by the by the whoever was managing the label at that time mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it pretty much i mean it was a huge hit for kiss but it pretty much fucking destroyed them for oh the yeah. next five years because their audience turned on them and it was just insane but and yeah they, they couldn't recover from it for a long time yeah yeah i was i i wouldn't be surprised if gene's simmons thought i mean they were pretty much like thinking about that a lot with the money, I think, especially him. <laughs> so it wouldn't be. <laughs> oh shocked. yeah. You know, you know how Gene's mind works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. No. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like that, that would, would have been a, one of their, their scheme, their kind of, you know, yeah. Not yeah. Obviously scheme, but you know, like their ideas. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing too, um, and we talked about Casablanca with disco too, they really nailed packaging. Right. Because all the you just you saw the label. You're like, I don't know who the artist is, but it's Casablanca. Right. That's so true. They especially their 12 inch singles. Yeah. Not only the album, but the 12 inch singles. They they had that same label on everything and they were marketed, branded across the board very consistently. Mm-hmm. And you saw it and you're just like, that makes me want to dance. And yeah. even, you know, even if you were a fan of Kiss, right. Uh, I grew up in a house where this was case. Even if you loved Kiss, right? 
you would see a Casablanca record and you're like, oh, maybe it's Donna Summer. Or, um, I mean, I grew up in a house where my brother loved both Kiss and Donna Summer equally, um, which is not always necessarily. I think that's the like Bob's thing. family. Yeah. That's yeah, not the easiest that's thing in the world. But like, I just, I just remember at the time going to record stores and seeing like Casablanca record displays and mm-hmm. stuff. Right. And they really sort of got this idea for momentum uh, with albums by, by putting out label things. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. Whereas I think, you know, and people are like, oh, that happens with like Blue Note, for example. Yeah. But I think Blue Note, a lot of that happened with hindsight. I think once these records sort of got a, a heritage sta- status, yeah. they sort of started Package, putting out- Repackage them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that I think that's kind of how that works, right? Um, and I know yeah. we talked about IRS, but another, and there's a book out on this I'm reading right now, but another label that makes me think of this a little bit too is SST. Because mm. um, there's a book out about SST records right now. And they were kind of like the anti-IRS. There's some, there's IRS and then there's sub-pop and then kind of in the middle, there's like touch and go and SST, right? And just SST was a label that if they just had gotten their shit together, it really could have been an amazing label. They put out a bunch of really great records and had a bunch of great artists on them. But they just never, they were always like struggling for money. They've always got bands that are pissed. They got all this crazy stuff on the road. So I think that like, even though now they have this sort of like reputation for being a groundbreaking label, I think to a certain extent it was all stitched together. Uh And I think when you look at like a Casablanca or an IRS, um, it's kind of the yin and yang of that, right? Um, Sub Pop kind of started like that. They were sort of very seat of our pants kind of fly-by-night thing. And then they really got lucky with just a bunch of bands. And I think if Soundgarden and Nirvana probably hadn't have broken, um, I don't know uh, how, I don't know how long that label would have lasted, but they had a bunch of really great well, stuff on the Did too. they, did they, it was like whole, no, I guess, I guess Nirvana came out. The first whole record they put out, I think on, on some. And the Babes in Toyland didn't, and then they had L7 too, I think. So, I mean, yeah. who knows? They might've had, and they even had the Afghan wigs, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So there could have been, you know, you never know, but Nirvana, Nirvana was their smash. It just, that's the, that's what it was, you know? But, you know, I, I really think that those years sort of between 85 and like maybe 98 was like this golden year. Mm-hmm. For for like indie record labels, it really. I mean, there's just mm. so many. Yeah. Um, you, know. you 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 were talking about shoegaze before, but you didn't mention Matador. I was going to let you mention Matador because <laughs> Matador and Rough Trade and all that. I kind of like I can't talk about everything, but Matt, you know, when I was when I was programming uh, radio in the '90s, trying to get anything from Matador Records. If you got Matador Records to service your record <laughs> label, it was a big thing, right? That's great. Because you couldn't buy their records in the stores. It was like, they were a nightmare to try to buy any fucking records huh. on Matador Records in the store, <laughs> right? Good luck. And then you called the guy and it was like literally the French taunter from Monty Python. Like, who are you and why are you bothering me? You know, why should you know? That's wow. hilarious. Who was it? I want to know. I can't oh, remember um, anymore. I oh, don't God, remember. what's his name? Um, he, and he's in England um, now. Oh, shit. Oh, I don't remember. I'll think of it in a minute. Um, All right. That's so funny. Because you guys were talking about Slayer. Ger- Gerard. Oh, yeah, Gerard. <laughs> who, once, who once I had a sort of working relationship with him, it was fine. But I've never been more terrified to call a yeah, label. Yeah, he was pretty scary. But then he, ever. Right, he, he, you know, he wasn't that scary, really. But yeah. <laughs> and he'd write these things in the trades. Like, it was kind of the <laughs> idea of a radio uh, record label. It's also a time, too, when people that worked at labels kind of became celebrities. I mean, you had some of that with Barry Gordy and Clive Davis and, and, mm. uh, and people like that before. But, but like, think about uh, think about um, what's his name from four one five. Yeah, it it was Seymour. No, 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 Howie, Howie. Howie. Yeah, yep. <laughs> from four, like four one five and Reprise and Sire and everything. Like so, like there, mm. yeah, people kind of became. Yeah, that there's a Howie? lot. There's a lot of people. Yeah. Well, maybe there's more people in my own head that are like that because I knew because I worked in the. But I also you'd also have to hear. I mean, you would just hear people talking about, oh, well, this guy's going to sign this band and stuff. Right. And right. It was it was becoming more like you watch 120 minutes. 
Yeah. And they'd be doing the news and they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah of this label really liked this band. So that's yeah. what you started to identify. And especially that kind of moved over to the um, Yo! MTV Raps when they would talk about mm. the people with Def Jam. This guy from- Well, that's what know. I was going to go into the whole, that whole Def Jam profile and yeah. Um, yeah. Tommy Boy scene because I was yes. so into that. You yes. Know? yes, please do. I mean, that was just, like I said in the beginning of the show, I mean, I was a little bit of a, uh, like a musical chameleon and a scene chameleon. So I would just like hop from scene to scene. And really, I was so, uh, my friend Helen, my friend Caroline and I, we were like so into hip hop with all of our souls, you know, just like, uh, (laughs) just loving so much of that good stuff. But I really think, you know, Rick Rubin, of course, I mean, talk about people who are known for some, something. Right. Um, I was at NYU too, but when he was a senior, I was a freshman. So he was doing that still from Weinstein, but, um, uh, you know, I used to hang out at Danceteria and so, uh, and I knew the Beastie Boys, uh, you know, a little bit and, um, and Rick a little bit, just, you know, just from seeing them around. But there was also, um, you know, when they, when that label became a little more established, um, at the same time, like Tom Silverman was doing Tommy Boy uh, against Stetsasonic, Queen Latifah, Della Soul, all these amazing people, Africa Bombada. Um, they oh, had yeah. Ashley Payne, they had Naughty by Nature. I mean, huge. 808 State. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that 808 State record for yep. Tommy Boy to put that record out was like, yeah. what is this? It's great. Yeah. They had Digital Underground. Um, yeah. And so it's like that whole you information know, society. Yes. I mean, oh my society. gosh. Yeah. 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 I saw them at 1018 a million times. Nice. Um, so, and also I'm I'm thinking profile profile was the other one. Profile. Um, oh yeah. They had a bunch of and, yeah, profile and jive had a bunch of stuff out. Yeah. So it was like that really created this whole, I, <clears throat> it might've been more underground at that time. Sort of like, I remember going to, um, Hotel Amazon and Payday. These were clubs. These were like just kind of like hip hop clubs, you Payday. know, that we oh would go God. to. And and just every week they would have uh, they would have amazing DJs. They all all people the whole scene would just go and hang out there and just you'd hear the new records. You'd hear you'd you know just get your information basically from this. You know, it was like with any club if or scene or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if all those records had actually, you know, broken into the mainstream yet, but they were about to, you know, mm-hmm. they were about to. And that, I think that was a really, really amazing um, time in, for, for hip hop in New York. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, uh, I'm, not, I'm saying New York, cause that's where I was, but yeah. I, I mean, it was well, a really in, inspiring time. Well, I, I can tell you that the first time I, I came to New York, um, in 89 88 or 89 um coming from the midwest where i heard hip-hop a little bit and then just realizing how it was everywhere right it was mind-blowing how culturally significant it was like because it hadn't really bled into the midwest yet right right it was just like what is this this is Mm -hmm. incredible right so i think it's you know in the same way that like it was almost like 77 again in new york I think. Yeah, it was, it was really felt like it was such a creative spark. I felt like it was, and we, you know, I used to work um, the fourth, a lot of the fourth and Broadway stuff. Cause I work, was working at Island, but we, the offshoot label fourth and Broadway had, we had Eric B and Rakim. I mean, I was yeah, working nice. that, you know, nice. and also we had um, delicious vinyl, which was really more poppy kind of rap, but young MC yes. and tone Loke. I mean, yeah. I have my jacket still for my fourth and bro and my delicious vinyl jacket. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was like, I wore that like a badge I, of honor. I got know? a, uh, <laughs> I got a delicious vinyl shirt from you. And mm-hmm. then I, I, I got, I do remember getting the tone. I got the double whammy of the tone look and the young MC 12 inches just cause I wanted them. <laughs> Definition of sound. Yeah. I think I yeah. remember that too. Mm-hmm. And at yep. that point, what labels got smart, these indie labels were like, well, we're going to create a hip hop division and sell this to the kids now that kind of or we're gonna have a hard label hard record label thing you know right um right and i can't remember alan will know this better than me but i think didn't metal blade get bought by a major label i know you're um, talking about metal blade but there was i remember for a while metal blade had all this indie 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 sort of like underground metal stuff that yes. i've never heard and then it just seemed to be really commercial um yeah and um uh, it's it's interesting because 
there's two labels that I was planning to talk about mm-hmm. uh, that started at the same time, Me- uh, Megaforce, Megaforce and Metal Blade, and both started in 82. And Metal Blade is an interesting story because it was started by a guy called uh, Brian Slagle. And he was working at a record store, you know, which is funny because that's, you know, kind of where I started too, just working in a record store. But he was like, wanted to do something to sort of um, highlight and help promote the local metal scene and uh, formed his little record label. He put out a compilation that had tracks from Metallica, Rat, and I think it was Black and Blue and just marketed the thing. And this label, um, evolved out of that. And a lot of their stuff is the really hardcore, really kind of like underground metal stuff. But they they had a number of big names. Lizzie Borden, of course. King Diamond, Fates Warning. Yeah. Um, Gwar. Did they have Overkill? That I don't remember. That sounds like it should be one of theirs, and I bet it is, but I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Gwar, yeah. Head. Gwar, holy shit. I remember Gwar. seeing getting like crap all over me remember they used to just like throw it like blood yeah and, <laughs> and, and i mean far more legendary for their antics and their yeah. stage presence than any song that they ever recorded um but megaforce started at the same time and they were so i was uh when i started in music retail uh in 85 i was working at specs music in florida and that's when i started to become much more aware of what labels were doing and who they were signing and what product they were putting out and all this kind of stuff. And I was the 45 buyer for my store. So I started to get super familiar with all the different labels and being kind of like a little metalhead. And um, all my friends were into the metal scene. So Megaforce is really the one that I was much more familiar with. I just Johnny latched on to yeah, yeah, yeah. Who used both to work just with passed Anthrax. away. I know. Exactly. I, both I, passed away within like horrible. the past year, year and a half or something. Yeah, it's so sad. But yeah. Metallica, Anthrax. Anthrax was who we worked, yeah. Yep. King's X. Yeah. Living Color. Them. <gasps> Living, Living Color. Living Color, man, had that first album was just an explosion. And they've done good stuff since then, but nothing that's really been as commercially successful as that first one. Yeah. But Skid Row, mm-hmm. a, a band that I never really got that into, but they were a biggie. Yep. Um, and so the I think where I first became aware of them was uh, in 85, or sorry, 87, the first um, Ace Fraley got signed to Megaforce. And Eddie Trunk talks, you know, he started at Megaforce and he talks all the time about his first big signing was Ace Fraley and blah, blah. And so the first album that he did post kiss uh which under the band name fraley's comet came out in 87 and i think that's the first time i ever saw the megaforce logo mm-hmm. and and started to become aware of it even though before that i already was familiar with metallica and you know anthrax and those kind of bands but um ace fraley is really where i started to like hone in on oh megaforce that's mm-hmm. a thing that's a thing i need to be paying more attention to yeah yeah, they had just like they really did have like so many kick-ass bands. Yeah, they were they were such a good label, and I don't know if Metal Blade got bought out, but they had distribution deals with um, a number of different companies, uh, and I don't know if they ever got bought out by a major label. I don't remember. I don't either. I don't know Metal Blade. I have to. I thought yeah. Capital picked it up and distributed it, but I might be distributed wrong. it. Yeah, but I don't know that they ever like. I can't remember over. if stuff yeah. had the Capital. Yeah, yeah, but those were those were my two like yeah. particularly Megaforce. Those were my like my metal lifeblood at the time. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. That was good stuff. There was also um, when I was at Virgin, the whole Astral Works scene was like you know oh, we yeah. had like Caroline and Astral. Astral works so like Chemical Brothers and so like my friend Ugh. Peter signed them, Peter Wolhelski, yeah. yeah, who I knew mm. from college radio and who became you know super successful um, in the industry um, for for especially just no, being known. He he was known for signing the Chemical Brothers, but uh, they had like Fat Boy Slim, you know. Mm. Just, they had, there was so many cool bands like, and then they also had some like 
Well, the Smashing Pumpkins were on Car- that was Caroline, but then we got them to the, the beta, beta band was on Astroworks. Say it again. The beta band was on Astroworks. I don't even remember them. Honestly. Yeah, I don't either. The beta band was on. They were interesting because they were on Astroworks, but they were like a guitar band. Mm, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you watch the movie High Fidelity, he's like, I'm uh-huh. going to sell five EPs by the. <laughs> yeah. Oh, holy shit! I haven't seen that wow. movie in a million years. Well, it haunts me in my life. <laughs> sure it does. <laughs> the book haunts me in my dreams. Yeah, right. funny. <laughs> so what do you guys each think goes into a good label? As not, uh, In terms of being someone who listens and collects music, what do you, what makes you want to like go into a label's, ca- like deep into their catalog or, or roster? An identity. And all the stuff we've already talked about. A, a, a strong yeah. identity. A, a a good a good logo something okay. that is consistent and is uh, is branded well and um I, I, you know that's just to me that's what it is you have to have signed good artists yeah you have to have like yeah. a track record yeah right right and yeah. um and i think that's what it is i think you have to yeah. develop that that family that sound and then market it well and also then from there, be able to expand because you can't just stick right to, to that, but do it in a way right. that's going to take your, your following with you and and expose them to other really cool right. artists. I mean, even even like Metal Blade never really uh, expanded beyond that, like underground metal kind of scene, but they did have the Goo Goo Dolls. Right. I mean, of all things. And they didn't have many things beyond that, but like Megaforce had Hank Williams the third mm-hmm. and Johnny Winter. So they didn't only do metal. They did, I mean, I would say that uh, Metal Blade did 98% metal. Yeah. But they did have a, one of two other things. So yeah, you have to you have to diversify a little bit. Or even cornering the market in in what you're good at, like they did, right. and just exactly. getting but getting new bands that are like innovative and that sound a little bit different from everything else that are right. still in that genre, you know. And Touch and Go did that. Every record on friggin' Touch and Go Mm-hmm. sounded the same but it was okay because you kind of <laughs> knew what you were going to get right right or, or alternative tentacles like these punk a lot of these punk labels like when you listen to an alternative re- tentacles record you're like okay i know right. what this is going to sound like right right even mm-hmm. irs to a certain extent even if the artists were way different like if you were listening to the three o'clock or timbuk three um mm. you mm. at least sort of knew that you had the same sort of aesthetic going in right um and I think that's interesting. Some labels decide that we're going to diversify our roster and be as different and get everybody. But mm-hmm. there's some that just like, this is our sound. This yeah. is our look. And it's what we know is what we're interested in. And I, I, you know, I was, when I was prepping for this, I was like, which do I like more? Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting because as much as I love creation and uh, 480 and wax tracks and, you know, things like chess um, that all sort of do the same thing. Yeah. I love, like, if you listen to the Sinatra-era Capitol Records, how diverse that was, right? Or if you listen to IRS, you know, in a more contemporary setting, um, I really like that, too, how they sort of mix all that stuff up. And I think it's interesting, sort of a, an interesting approach to it. It's like, do can you like both, or is there one that people prefer over the other? I, I think it's great to do both. I think I like both. But I mean, a good example of what you're talking about, Rob, is where I worked at, you know, at Island. I mean, and spe- speaking again of someone who, who Chris could, Chris Blackwell, one of the most, you know, famous music industry people of all time, right? Starting that label, mm-hmm. having, you know, such a connection with uh, all the reggae hits that, came, you know, Bob Marley, Toots, all those, you know, amazing bands, but then branching and, you know, I mean, bringing us you too, bringing, uh, but then we also would have driving and crying mm-hmm. or the buck pets or, you Buckets. know, like the pogues. So like right. the, the Island was so diverse and that's what we were. I feel like we were kind of known for that diversity, but yet it was, it was such good music. There was so much good music. Yeah. It was because yeah. the, the taste makers, they knew the people who were signing artists were really into music really knew it so well and really got the good stuff really Mm. signed the good stuff yeah do you think that 
that's the case now? Do you think people that are taste maker taste makers are picking rosters for labels, or do you think it's all dollars and cents now? Well, I think it's always been dollars and cents. Yeah, but it can be both. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, to, and it depends on the label. If you're talking about yeah. a major, if you're talking about A and M or Mercury or something like that, it's a whole different yeah. thing than yeah. if you're talking about metal blade or if you're talking about irs mm-hmm. they are they don't have the money to do that right yeah. and they're doing a very very different thing I right. right although now what's interesting is that the advent of digital technology i think has le- leveled that playing field mm-hmm. uh to oh, yeah. a, li- to a little so. bit where you don't need necessarily need the money to do it right but exactly. i think you know i uh, there are less people like steph in the industry that go from label to label that like talk to radio or whatever there's less and less like boots on the ground with it. It feels mm-hmm. like it feels like it's more, Hey, this record's out and it goes through channels and that's it. And it seems sort of very esoteric. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have, you know, the other thing that's different too now is we have marketing companies. So instead of yeah. labels having mm-hmm. a staff where like, you know, Steph's calling me and, or she's calling you Alan, you know, Hey, I'm doing this or that. They have basically a promotion company handle everything and they don't have to spend any money on it. And I think while that makes sense, I think you lose sort of some of the uh, the, the personal can, touches. Well, no, yeah. I think the completeness of a label. I think it's really hard yeah. to get a, a cohesive feel for a label that way. So well, I yeah, because it was a, like a representative thing of, you know, y- y- your staff was representing the label, right? So that that came across in the people that you, you spoke to. Yeah. Um, are there labels now that you guys are really attentive to that you're sort of keeping track of stuff on? Honestly, I'm not. No. I don't know about you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> are you, Rob? Are you? Um, Slumberland, anything that comes out on Slumberland, uh, they've got like just bunches of stuff from like the Umbrellas and Cheer School and hmm. uh, uh, Kids on a Crime Spree. All their bands have great names. Like Kids on a Crime <laughs> they, they have two bands I love, called one called Art Sick and Kids on a Crime Spree. I'm like, done, I'm hooked, right? <laughs> right. Then, there's, a, there's another one called Shelf Life that I, that I like a hmm. lot too. But like, I think that this sort of idea of the label as we kind of know it, it's still around, but it's kind of the digital format has really sort of changed. Yeah, yeah I agree. Not like it was. Yeah. I, and I kind of think there's there's some, at least some, anti-label sentiment because labels aren't known for keeping up with the the progress of the music industry with mm-hmm. the digital thing. I think labels always struggle Completely. to catch up with what is with the way that the, the river is bending. I have yes. a per, I mean a perfect example of that was when I was at Virgin and I was I was doing video promotion and all I, I was promoting to the all the um local and regional shows around the country. And then and 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 I was working MTV and VH1, but that was really my boss's job. But so you know, everybody wanted to start using their uh videos on, you know, on the you know, digitally, whatever, and start put it, putting it out there too. My I, it's like my company would not they would not let it happen. You know, they would, I'm sorry to, to like, but it was like, there was so much resistance to, and, and I would have to get certain things like sign permission for one, you know, show to be able to play this one thing. It was crazy. Like they were so resistant to it for so long. And you know what? They wow. all screwed themselves right? because it just, it just kept, ha- it just went right past them. Right. And there was a real big downfall of like, you know, th- them in that respect. Wow, and they will fully. I think any label would fully realize that now. But you're right; they're completely resistant to. They were yeah. at least at that and time. I, it was incredible. Know, I couldn't believe it when I was watching it happen in front of my face. <laughs> and I think you know one of the things that happened. I think in the last ten or fifteen years, is you get these indie labels get an artist, and then the artist gets signed to a major, and that sort of keeps them around. So, like when REM went to Warner Brothers, that helped R. That sort of helped IRS stay in business. To a certain extent, uh-huh. um, when Arcade Fire left Merge and went to Columbia, you know, they Merge was still getting some of the money from that. So right. I think I think that the way the labels sort of do business, and if you're an artist and you're on a label and you want to get your music out there, that has changed as well. That whole complexion, I think, is oh, shifted yeah. too. Oh yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Hope you enjoyed our discussion about record labels, the good, the bad, the crazy, the indie, the major, everything. Um, so, Stephanie, where can our listeners learn more about you on the Internet? Well, you can go to Bandcamp and find my my album, There Are Birds, and my new single, There Was a Time. Um, I also have a website just called therearebirds.com. So that's for my album, but it's also for, I have a page devoted to the new single, There Was a Time, and all the streaming platforms, <laughs> Spotify, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> Rob. So you can find me um, on KDHX on, on the radio, Kids Ask Your Parents, um, <laughs> Wednesdays from 7 to 9, and you can uh, stream online at kdhx.org. Also, you can listen to our archive stream. All the shows are archived for two weeks. So if you're doing something on a Wednesday night, you can listen on a Thursday on the archive stream or not. Um, okay. <laughs> so yeah, you can find me there. That's the easiest place. All right. I've got another podcast that's called Earth Station Trek. Shockingly, it's all about Star Trek. And uh, we have new episodes that come out every Monday morning. So check that out. And also, I have a small, very, very small publishing company called Cosmic Press. And you can find that at K-O-Z-M-I-C, CosmicPress.com, or on Facebook or Twitter or Insta. All right, so we will be back again next week. We'll have Anthony returning to us from the land of his birth. So we look forward to hearing about his travels. Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us for the past two weeks. Thank I can't you so wait much. Till we, I can't wait till we have you on again. It was super fun. Thank you. And so I think the next time we have you on, we have to tackle uh, what makes a good drummer. Yeah, let's do that one. Awesome. All right. So everybody have a great week. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll tune in again. We'll see you around the bend. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.